Welcome to episode 6 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. An early print version of this episode was published by the website The Talk House in January of 2020. Though she probably doesn't realize it, my mother is the envy of millions of goth girls and probably more than a few goth boys. After all, famous heavy metal icon Peter Steele once confessed to having a major crush on her. At the time of this revelation, in the mid-70s, my mother found Peter's admission of puppy love amusing and adorable. Peter, the young teenage cousin of her new husband, was merely a tag-along on the couple's dates to Seaside Heights or Coney Island, not the Viking rock demigod, reluctant pin-up model, and subject of reams of erotic fanfiction he would later become. The youngest of six siblings and the family's only boy, the child that my family knew as Pete Ratajczyk was precocious and weird. Excelling at impressions of wild animals, he earned his keep on these frequent trips with his older cousin and his pretty new wife by keeping them entertained with his well-rehearsed guttural canine bellows, wild coyote keening, and lycanthropic snarls. Peter, though privately jealous of my father for winning the hand of what was then his ideal woman, was a lot of fun. By the time I was born, Peter was an adult, living in his parents' basement and playing in a band called Fallout, and he was working, like my Uncle George, for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. We just called it the Parks Department. Cousin Pete had a booming voice and long, onyx-colored hair. Though he would always be referred to amongst family members as Little Pete, this was to distinguish him from his father, Big Pete, Peter stood almost seven feet tall, a height which, from my vantage point as a toddler, seemed far greater. No longer a bratty third wheel, Peter the adult now effortlessly commanded a room, a talent I noticed even as a child, long before Peter's public renown. Do you remember the character of Gaston in Disney's Beauty and the Beast? Peter was like that. He'd enter a room and with his mere presence instantly make everyone in the room look much smaller. A fit and hulking Peter would emerge from some basement room and say something trivial about traffic or the weather, and all eyes were on him. That Peter, one of my deadhead cousins would say, he's such a funny guy. As a child, I was terrified of Peter and his animal noises, which had grown more realistic sounding with his passage into young adulthood. I would hear him barking and run into the bathroom to cower and hide. This lasted only a few years. As I grew older and became more and more interested in music, Cousin Pete increasingly seemed not so much scary as godly. His band had released an album, it was said, though this accomplishment was regarded by the older members of the family as something of an amusing lark. Peter's real job was wearing green khaki pants and overseeing a road crew that one day might be pruning tall trees in the park and on another, be picking up highway trash with a sharp-pointed stick. During one of the family get-togethers, one of Peter's older sisters, noting my interest in music in general, and in Peter specifically, set me up in the basement with a Walkman and an advanced copy of Peter's new album with his band Carnivore, which was titled Retaliation. I sat on the sofa and listened attentively to songs called Jesus Hitler and Angry Neurotic Catholics. This was the stuff. My father had long boasted privately that he taught young Peter how to curse, and also how to spit for distance. And on the evidence of this album, his tutelage was thorough. 
Years passed, and Cousin Peter would become for me a beacon and a hero. Though we only saw each other a few times a year, Peter proved that it was possible to come from where we came from and still have a career in music. More than merely an inspiration in the abstract, though, Peter also took a personal interest in my nascent musical pursuits. Whenever he visited my parents, he made it a point to make sure my guitar was in tune, and he always took the time to send me occasional letters along with his latest demo tapes, stickers, and t-shirts. Aware of my affinity for books about fucked up things, he graciously sent me a hardback titled The Bedside Book of Bastards, a compendium of tales about notable cannibals, murderers, and despots, which included Attila the Hun, Marquis de Sade, and liver-eating Johnson. Peter's popularity grew. His new band Typo Negative performed at Ozfest, and Peter was a close personal friend of Ozzy, Dimebag Daryl, and Glenn Danzig. Typo Negative was a regular fixture on MTV, including a memorable appearance on Beavis and Butthead. He posed for the cover of Playgirl, later boasting that, as per his stipulation, his was the first pictorial in the magazine's long history to depict an erect, rather than flaccid, penis. I remember the backyard family barbecue in 1995, when my cousins passed the issue around, having strategically placed post-it notes over Peter's genitals so as not to offend the older family members. Upon being handed the magazine, Peter's elderly mother, my Aunt Nettie, nodded in vague, dispassionate approval before handing the magazine back. It's important to note here that Peter was by no means the black sheep of the family. On the contrary, everyone loved him, including the grandmas and grandpas and the doggedly religious members of my large family. Jeff Wagner's biography of my cousin, Soul on Fire, accurately portrays Peter's duality. The fact that this notoriously dark dude was also an extremely generous, charismatic, and sensitive person, with a quick wit and a strange and even corny sense of humor. Peter was constantly making puns. As his much younger and starry-eyed cousin, it was years before I was privy to his famous darkness. One Thanksgiving at my Aunt Nancy's house, Peter seemed unusually despondent. He confessed to me that he wished he had never left the parks department. Wait a minute, I said. You mean to tell me you'd rather be picking up garbage with a poker than touring with Ozzy? That life just made more sense, he said. Now an adult and by now having my own stories to share of touring and recording and mismanagement and label snafus, I felt comfortable regarding Peter as a kind of contemporary. After all, we ostensibly had the same job. To Peter's eternal credit, he never made me feel otherwise, even though he was touring on a giant bus and was playing arenas and had recently appeared on an episode of HBO's Oz while I was touring in a decrepit Econoline van, sleeping on floors, and playing to a few dozen people a night. Peter's musical tastes were eclectic, and I almost never heard him talk about metal. Instead, he encouraged me to buy albums by the ethereal dream pop bands on 4AD he loved, like Cocktoo Twins and Dead Can Dance. He was also crazy about the Beatles. Feeling bold on the occasion of one of my family's annual 4th of July get-togethers, I decided to ask Peter about something that I'd long wondered about. Hey man, I said, I always wanted to ask you, why did you thank me on Bloody Kisses? Bloody Kisses remains Typo Negative's most popular album, released at the height of the band's fame. The list of acknowledgements on the insert is very small, and featured only a handful of names, mine among them. I was barely 14, and it meant a lot to me. Why? he asked. Well, did it help you meet girls? I had to consider this question. 
The girls I was increasingly interested in at the time wore barrettes in their hair and liked George O'Keefe and Morrissey. Still, in some strange and roundabout way, yes, this minor claim to fame did help me meet girls. And anyway, I knew where Peter was going with this, and I didn't want to appear ungrateful. Yeah, I said, I, I guess it did. Well then, you're welcome, Peter howled. It didn't occur to me at the time that the actual motivation for this tip of his very large hat may have been a way of acknowledging his close friendship with my father and mother. Or perhaps Peter viewed me as not merely a disciple, but a scion to which the family rock star torch would eventually be passed or whatever. Or maybe he just thought it would help me meet girls. With Peter, you never really knew. In the early 2000s, my girlfriend took a college class on Staten Island and there struck up a friendship with a woman named Anita. In a very unlikely scenario, when my girlfriend mentioned that I was a musician, Anita said that her husband was too. He plays drums in a band called Typo Negative, she said. Over the next year, Anita, the wife of Typo Negative's drummer Johnny, would become an acquaintance, and my girlfriend and I would regularly babysit the couple's young daughter, whose picture would later appear on the sleeve of the very first album by my then-new band, Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice. My relation to Peter was merely a curious coincidence. It's a small world. I recall around this time gazing longingly as the members of Typo Negative prepared for one of their tours, running all of the necessary tedious errands. By now I had toured a great deal, and I recognized the familiar adrenaline of even the most mundane preparatory tasks. There was, however, one clear and important difference. The tour on which Typo Negative was about to embark was important. It was necessary. Touring was how the band members made their living, and a large crew of drivers, tour managers, lighting people, merch sellers, roadies, and techs all depended on Typo Negative for their livelihood. In contrast, my own tours barely broke even, and I was often plagued with feelings of futility, like being a musician was increasingly something I was doing for myself out of some pitiful, tragic vanity. But then I remembered what Peter said about wishing he was still working for the Parks Department, and I felt a tinge of gratitude for my autonomy and my freedom. But only a tinge. The last time I saw Peter, he was complaining about bands like Nickelback and their ilk. It all sounds the same, he said. He had just gotten the large, bold, blue-black Alpha and Omega tattoos on each of his hands, about which a few of the older women in the family rebuked him lightly. Peter now also seemed to have trouble paying attention. He was jumpy and manic, his quick wit and constant punning less endearing than obnoxious. At the time, my own metal band had recently been signed to a small but prominent indie label, and Peter seemed interested but distracted. Wary then as now of exploiting personal relationships or social climbing, I played down my new band, even after Peter asked me to send him some of the music, and said that maybe we could do a few small shows together once the album was released. Send it to me over email, he said. I'll send you my new album too. What's your email address? Oh, cool, I said. I'm at oracle909 at AOL dot... Dot communist, Peter interrupted. Wahahaha. <laughs> my memory of the last time I spoke to Peter continues to haunt me. I was spending a few days visiting my parents, as I often did, whenever New York served as the departure point for one of my frequent tours, when my father answered the phone, spoke for a few minutes, and then handed me the receiver. It's Peter, he said. I actually had to ask, Peter who? Your cousin, who else? My father replied, incredulous. Peter told me he was hanging out at some bar on Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn and asked if I was interested in coming out and having a few drinks with him. 
Peter had always been a friend in addition to a cousin, but his calling me out of the blue to come hang out with him, in hipster Williamsburg no less, seemed odd. I didn't have a car at the time, and it would have taken me over an hour to get there by bus. I made an excuse and told him to give me a shout next time he was there. I feel sad imagining him now, sitting in an unfamiliar cosmopolitan Bedford Avenue bar, maybe flanked by members of Animal Collective or Interpol or The Strokes, feeling out of place, a stranger in a once-familiar land, looking in vain to connect with someone who would neither fawn over nor ridicule him. The fact that Peter and I weren't especially close was another reason he may have felt like he could trust me. I was a familiar face, but not too familiar. At the time, Peter was feuding with his sisters over his parents' Brooklyn estate, and had recently been briefly committed to an institution. I wish I'd gone to see him. In retrospect, I can't help wondering if by declining Peter's offer to join him for drinks, I ignored a cry for help. I was at my parents' house again a few months later when my father entered the kitchen and told me that Peter had died suddenly of a heart failure. It was later determined to be diverticulitis. I had to ask him to repeat himself. Yeah, said my dad. 48 years old. Fucked up, huh? There's a thing that can happen to you when you learn of something terrible that narrows your vision of the things around you. Whatever piece of furniture on which you happen to be sitting feels suddenly very material, as if you hadn't previously noticed its significance, its mass, its thingness. This chair or sofa or step or countertop you've always taken for granted and never previously acknowledged, instantly and forever after becomes, upon hearing bad news or maybe in the midst of a vicious, devastating, and permanently transformative argument with a partner or friend, a conspicuous prop in a tragedy. I remember leaning back on the arm of my parents' white and blue striped sectional sofa and thinking, this stupid thing exists and Peter is dead. I'm wary of making more of my relationship with Peter than there was. Over the course of my life, Peter and I had a total of maybe 30 actual conversations, and as the years trudged on and Peter's touring schedule became busier, I saw less and less of him. Still, Peter left an indelible impression on me merely by helping to illustrate, by example, an alternative path. His success confirmed for me at a very crucial time that life need not be a series of compromises, concessions, and fading passions. He also personified the old adage, the trouble with wishes is that they come true. In 2011, a tree was planted in Peter's honor in Prospect Park in the Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn, not far from where my dad and Peter grew up together. I haven't been there yet. One of music's greatest qualities is its potential to provide a kind of immortality. My father, a man with a lifelong affection for and almost supernatural rapport with dogs, has always maintained a bank of play phrases he deploys whenever he's giddily roughhousing with a pet. To a dog jawing a bone or toy, my father, grabbing one end of the object, will mock command, Give me that! Punctuating the words with a quick intake of breath through his clenched teeth. A few years ago, my father asked me if I owned a copy of the typo-negative album Life is Killing Me. The album contains a song called If You Don't Kill Me, I'm Going to Have to Kill You, parentheses, Give Me That throughout which Peter does his best imitation of this, one of my dad's most identifiable and enduring catchphrases. When I hear the song now, it reminds me not so much of Peter, but of my dad. I hear it as Peter's tribute to his older, cooler cousin with the hot wife, a nod of belated gratitude to the man who taught him how to curse and spit. Thank you for listening. 
Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please tell your friends about the Toth Zone. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. The theme music for the Toth Zone, as always, is provided by my good pal and bandmate Nick Mitchell Maiato. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time for episode 7. This is the Toth Zone. <laughs>